The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, a couple of weeks ago, I had a discussion with a couple of journalists from Arte, which is the Franco-German TV network, and they were going down to, to Africa to do some reporting on the China-Africa relationship. And they talked to me a little bit about infrastructure, and it was so fascinating to hear their questions about Chinese infrastructure, because in their mind, infrastructure is only the things that you can see, the roads, the bridges, the hospitals, the dams, the ports. That's what people talk about the most when we talk about Chinese construction and infrastructure building in Africa. And I explained to them that there's a whole other story about the infrastructure that you don't see that is equally as important, if not more important, to the daily lives of tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of Africans across the continent. And we're talking about, of course, ICT, Information Communications Technology. I've mentioned on the show before that when I was living in the Congo a few years back, I had my Huawei 3G dongle that connected to a Huawei network that connected to Huawei routers that no doubt connected to Huawei data lines that connected out to the internet. It was an entire Chinese network in Kinshasa that connected people to the internet. Beyond that, there was this issue also of the fact that now Chinese phones are pervasive across Africa. So on the ICT side, we're seeing it on the front end and the back end. And in so many ways, it is transforming the continent and people really don't know much about it. It's really exploding so quickly. You know, like in, in the past, even a few years ago, you would not necessarily assume that your normal general African that you would meet in the streets of Johannesburg has a smartphone. Now, that's a relatively, you know, safe assumption. Like, you know, the amount of smartphones per 100 people has increased so quickly. And with it comes, you know, network expansion and, and just you know, the, an increased interconnectivity in African societies is really changing everything. Now, there's two sides to this story. As with everything in the China-Africa relationship, there's the exciting part, which, of course, are the cell phones that Kobus talked about, the interconnectivity, the, all of the new bandwidth that's coming, and all of that is fantastic. Giving people the opportunity to access technology, the internet, social media, at a price point that they would never be able to do with other providers. However, there is another side to this story. So the Chinese are bringing in the hardware, but they're also bringing in some of the methods that they've perfected here in China to monitor, to surveil, to use, to oppress, and to really make life very difficult for people who question the government, who are dissidents, who are people who, you know, are just, it's part of a surveillance state. And that is the complicated part about what China is doing. And it raises the question as to whether or not China is using technology to impose on other countries the way it does business here in China. So to answer that question, we thought it would be really, really great to bring in an expert on the subject because it's a topic that we've touched on over the years, but not really delved into. 
So in an article, China and the Building of Africa's Information Societies was published recently, we thought this would be a great time to call back to the program Ingenio Gargiladone, who teaches at Wits University in South Africa, Cobus, your old stomping grounds there. And he's also an associate research fellow in new media and human rights at the University of Oxford. Ingenio, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Eric. And it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to be back. It's fantastic to have you back. This is a fantastic topic to talk about because it is so complicated. There is a, a great story here, really one that China, I don't think it's enough credit for. But there's also a more nefarious story here that is very concerning for people about whether or not China is, in fact, exporting the way it manages media and communications here in China to countries in Africa, which should be of concern to those who are worried about human rights and civil rights and political pluralism. So talk to me a little bit about this question as to whether or not in the research that you did, is China actually imposing its model on African countries? The story, the long answer, it becomes a little bit more complex because it's true that China is not suggesting a specific pathways towards building resilient, harmonious, sovereign information societies. But at the same time, the way in which China has provided support, mostly to states, he's incredibly empowering one actors among others. And there has been long debates uh, in uh, so-called internet governance uh, about what is the ideal combination of forces, of actors, uh, to build strong information societies where innovation is blossoming, uh, voices of people are listened to, and so forth. And they came up with this idea of multi-stakeholderism. So it's not just one stakeholder that should take the lead, the state, uh, but there should be a cooperation between different stakeholders. Some of them uh, are state actors, but others are private actors and uh, NGOs. And we have seen at the beginning, for those who have followed the, the development of information societies uh, in Africa, there was, especially in the late 1990s and early 2000, an idea that um, support for having these different voices participating uh, into uh, shaping the futures of Kenyan uh, information space or the Kenyans, uh, a little bit of a different stories for countries like Ethiopia or Rwanda. And the fact that China is helping mostly states and governments uh, is in reinforcing these and possibly weakening others or putting others more at the margins. And we have seen that at different point of time, each actor is important in ensuring that information societies are healthy, if I can use that, uh, that kind of adjective. So, Eugenia, to break this down a little bit, um, when you say that China is, you know, supporting more on, you know, more the state side in Africa than, say, private companies, who do we mean by China in that case? What is the mix of, you know, Chinese corporate interests and Chinese government interests in this kind of support? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, the like of Deborah Brotingham uh, and others try to unpack uh, the the ways in which uh, China offers support and explaining that it's complicated. You know, we, we use China as a, as a shortcut, uh, but China is, first of all, a big country and there are many Chinese actors. But in the case of the ICTs, uh, I have noticed 
two main ways to provide support. One is uh, directly government-to-government relationship, uh, high-level meetings either in Beijing or in Accra or in Addis Ababa, and uh, followed by uh, large loans uh, that uh, come with some strings attached. Uh, If the loan comes directly from the Exim Bank, uh, it's likely or it's almost uh, a given that the companies working on on the project are going to be either Huawei or ZTE. The other ways in which uh, this support is provided is through expert credit. So it could be Huawei or ZTE to take the lead, uh, to sort of like uh, explore the space in a given country, seize an opportunity, and then connect with the Chinese government or Exim Bank uh, and trying to get the preferential uh, uh, expert credit uh, so that a project can be developed. and kickstarted. So in the case of this type of infrastructure, there is a quite a strong uh, connection between uh, the Chinese government and Chinese companies. Uh, when you then move to the market of handset, it's very different. Uh, techno has become very popular in many countries in Africa uh, because of its very resilient phone at a very cheap price. Uh, and in this case, you can see it as a, a more of a commercial venture. And uh, start times when it comes to digitalization uh, is a kind of uh, coat in between. So it, the story is complex, but when it comes to this kind of infrastructure, uh, laying down fiber optic and mobile phone towers and so forth, uh, companies and the Chinese government uh, work quite closely together. Ingenio, it's interesting you raise the issue of Techno, and Techno is a company that I think very few people may have heard of, but it is incredibly important in Africa. This is a company that now controls 30% of the entire mobile phone market across the continent. It's a brand that most people outside of Africa have never even heard of, and yet here it is. It's just remarkable how one company has such a hold on it. Again, then there's Huawei, ZTE, a number of Chinese brands that are making handphones that people really seem to like quite well. I mean, they're very, very popular. They're affordable. But now let's talk a little bit about some other examples of the technology and kind of get your take on it. In There was some news that crossed a couple weeks ago that Zimbabwe will be the first client in uh, in Africa to take China's facial recognition technology. And China has, is far ahead of the rest of the world in, in facial recognition. And if you live here in China, you are constantly dealing with facial recognition, whether it's on the street, at the airport, in the railways, at the bank, uh, even now at Kentucky Fried Chicken. You can walk up and there's a facial recognition of your uh, body and your screen and you, you go up and it recognizes you. You put your order in and then it recommends either what meal you should have. And uh, it's terrifying, but at the same time, quite neat and quite exciting. Then there is in countries like Ethiopia, Huawei has been building the networks there. And there's been a lot of concern from human rights groups, particularly Human Rights Watch, that they are also implementing some of the more oppressive and repressive technologies that a lot are very concerned about. So why don't you walk us through a little bit of the roadmap of the three countries that you looked at, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Ghana, and talk to us a little bit about some of the technologies that are being applied there and what you found in your research as to whether or not they are forces for good or maybe forces for concern. It's really interesting that you mentioned the case of Zimbabwe, and uh, I really look forward, and I hope there's going to be some researchers uh, doing some studies there, because uh, it's true that facial recognition, as you said, uh, is becoming pervasive in China. 
But there is a researcher uh, in the US, I believe her name is Jay Buamini, but I might be wrong. But her research has been uh, fascinating because she has been looking at uh, algorithmic bias and how technology can be racist. And she used exactly the kind of uh, examples of facial recognition. And she even used a case study from China showing that uh, in the case of black people, uh, facial recognition software often doesn't work. And the reason for this glitch is that uh, algorithms tend to learn from being fed uh, a lot of uh, examples, information and cases. And in the case of China, they have been fed, uh, that was her example, it was probably from a couple of years ago, very few faces of black people. And uh, I do hope that the Chinese have learned the lessons and they are improving on that. Uh, but I could find, uh, I would expect uh, if the technology continued to evolve uh, in this sense, with this kind of embedded bias, a lot of problems for Zimbabwean citizens being actually recognized uh, as individuals. And uh, it's important in this case not just to single out China, because similar scandals and similar cases of uh, algorithmic bias uh, have been also found for Google. There was uh, this uh, uproar that emerged again a couple of years ago, maybe even three years ago, when Google implemented a new algorithm to sort photos for us. And it was a case of a couple of young black people flagged as gorillas instead. And Google obviously... And, the, and Microsoft as well faced a problem with its Connect game system where it too didn't recognize black people. So that's not uniquely a uh, Chinese situation. Absolutely, absolutely not. But I think this is an important area for... Uh, researchers and for journalists uh, and others to keep an eye on. And I'm sure it's something that can be dealt with, uh, but it's one of the examples where a technology that has worked beautifully in China or elsewhere may fail to work uh, in a different context for a very specific reason. Moving to the case of Ethiopia, and it's interesting how the supposedly strong and productive cooperation between the Ethiopian government and the Chinese government has turned sour and most of the users of technologies in Ethiopia have to pay the price for a policy that hasn't worked. And I try to explain what I mean with that. Ethiopia is the only country in Africa that has maintained a monopoly over telecommunication and has tried to expand communication and access in a regime of monopoly, mostly because of China's come to the rescue or has come to support uh, this very unique strategy. And things went relatively well for a while. Uh, the, the first collaboration started in 2006. Uh, but uh, we have also an example and a case study of how in a regime of monopoly and the lack of competition uh, also results uh, in a lack of improvement of services. If you happen to be in Addis Ababa, Addis Ababa and I'm sure a lot of listeners of your podcast uh, who connect from uh, Ethiopia will smile uh, and uh, you can uh, receive five different messages of uh, explaining why you can't reach the person you're trying to call. One is the network is busy, the other one you dial the wrong number, which is not true, and in the other case there can be something else. This is just because of incompetence, because uh, this kind of cozy relationship between Ethio Telecom and Huawei and ZTE has uh, created uh, reality where access might have expanded, uh, but it's very chaotic system that just doesn't work. And as an example of these of kind of mutual frustration, I think it was in 2016 that some elements of the project developed by ZTE were actually taken away from ZTE by the Ethiopian government and given to Ericsson. And so this idea of 
coming with no strings attached, with no models, it could actually backfire. And the Chinese, some of the Huawei employees I spoke with were quite frustrated and they would have been willing to suggest ways to liberalize and open up the market. But the government of Ethiopia simply didn't want to listen. Eugenio, um, if I understand your argument correctly, that China is or Chinese help is essentially strengthening African institutions, and so the the kind of fallout of that on the ground in in a particular African country depends very much on what kind of state institution it is and yep. like what yep. its inclinations are. How have you seen it play out in different specific African contexts where you know governments are less and more authoritarian? Well, in the cases of like Kenya and Ghana, for example, China has fit in a very diverse uh, uh, scenario where there are companies competing and the government is trying to do its role, of, for example, laying out infrastructure that can be shared both by public institution and by private actors. So I would say that China has adapted quite well in more democratic spaces uh, characterized by greater competition. When it comes to the like of Ethiopia, as I explained just now, these fitting in to the system created by Ethiopian institution has definitely been respectful of the national project, but they also created a lot of problems. And what I've seen, and as you know, I guess I discussed this with you guys before, I have been working for a few years on a book trying to explain in detail and with, with greater nuance the specific role of China in shaping information societies, but also considering other factors. One discourse, one narrative that has been used certainly by authoritarian regimes, but also by some democratic regimes to justify certain measures, uh, surveillance and censorship, uh, has not come from China, but actually has come from the United States. It has been the so-called securitization of development and foreign policy. What follows from uh, the anti-terrorism agenda in the aftermath of uh, 2001. And so what uh, is really interesting to me, and I am trying to argue in the book, is that at a discursive level, it is the West that is looked at, uh, or the contradiction of the West uh, that have been uh, are looked at uh, to justify repression. But then it may be Chinese technology, certainly in countries like Ethiopia, less so in countries like Ghana or Kenya, that is being used uh, to implement that kind of agenda. So we have this kind of unholy alliance uh, between the East and the West that can lead to authoritarian uh, outcomes uh, or to the restraining of uh, the space for, for expression and for contestation. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. A lot of people make the assumption that China is the only actor selling this type of surveillance technology to Ethiopia. But when I was doing a little bit of research ahead of our show, I found that Ethiopians had been buying similar surveillance technology from the Americans, the Italians, Israelis, and others. 
And so I think it's easy for people in the West to criticize the Chinese when, in fact, their own companies are selling this type of controversial technology as well. And I guess that brings up the question for me. We're talking a lot about what the Chinese are doing. Obviously, this is the China in Africa podcast, so that's what we would do. But give us a little bit of the context of how the Chinese factor in the overall African ICT market. Are they a big player? Are they the big player? Or are the likes of Ericsson, Alcatel, Samsung, some of the other global players also, should we take them into account as well? Yes, I will answer to this question in a second. I just wanted to pick up uh, what you said earlier on uh, about the combination of different uh, partners uh, and technologies, because I think Ethiopia is a fascinating case uh, um, because it's using Chinese infrastructure, but uh, uh, as you mentioned, there is an American involvement, and this doesn't come in the forms of technology, but in the terms of training. Because of WikiLeaks, uh, we have learned that for a long time, the American government, actually the NSA, has supported a project called Lion's Pride, uh, where NSA officials were training Ethiopian spies uh, to use technology for surveillance. And then, uh, later on, came uh, Italian and British companies uh, selling surveillance technologies uh, to uh, spy on uh, Ethiopians in Ethiopia and even abroad. So you have this kind of very weird, but very interesting combination where you have American training, Chinese infrastructure, and Italian and, uh, and British software that makes life for Ethiopian citizens more complex, but it's really difficult to point the fingers of one of them. And I think we have to have a greater debate about uh, double standards, hypocrisy, and when uh, some actors want to protect the idea of inf an open information society, they should look at themselves first and then maybe take a, a higher moral ground if they can. Certainly it's not the case of the United States uh, in this particular point in time, uh, but uh, Lion's Pride has been running for, for a decade almost. So going to the question, to the latest question, China, again, has been able to seize different opportunities in different countries. So in some cases, Ethiopia, again, is the player. Simply no other technological, technological companies, not other telecommunication infrastructure makers can compete with the like of Huawei and ZTE. But then if we just move to Rwanda, for example, the story is very different and it's fascinating because we have another Asian partner, in this case is South Korea, which is doing exactly what China is doing in Ethiopia. The Rwandan government and the South Korean governments, uh, through Korea, via Korea Telecom, have been overrolling the telecommunication system completely and scaling it up uh, to the 4G level. Also receiving quite a bit of criticism because say, well, Rwanda has a lot of problems with electricity and other stuff. Why we want to go for the, for the latest technology when it comes to mobiles? Uh, but uh, it's fascinating to see that uh, different partners are playing different roles in different countries. So it's really difficult to generalize. Uh, certainly in terms of uh, the size of the loans that are offered, uh, the size of the presence of companies on the ground in Africa, I would say that the Chinese are the most employer, important player right now. But if you then focus on a specific country, you can see a very different story. And I think all of these stories have to be analyzed using specific tools uh, and trying to understand the, the uniqueness. 
How do you see this developing in the next decade or so? Um, you know, I saw today that Huawei announced that they they are um, aggressively trying to increase their market share um, for handsets um, in, in South Africa and in Africa as a whole, and that they're launching very big new marketing campaigns. How do you, you know, kind of see Chinese kind of presence in this in the sector developing? And do you think their success there is going to increase competition and pull in other players from other countries? Well, it's very difficult to make a, a prediction. I think it's uh, in the case of handset, uh, China is going to become uh, a common feature. You know, at some point we're going to stop talking about China becoming a player or like because it's just going to be obvious. And uh, I mean, this could happen. I guess in just a few years from now. And when it comes to infrastructure, Eric already mentioned the invisibility of Chinese infrastructure when it comes to ICTs as compared to other types of infrastructure. So China is there, but ordinary citizens might not be aware that they are communicating through fiber optic cables built in Shenzhen. And so at one level, I can see conversation about what is China doing? What is China's role uh, kind of disappearing? Because it's like asking, uh, what is the role of Samsung? Uh, you know, Samsung is just there and uh, it's there for many of us or Apple or others. At the same time, when we shift the focus a little bit on the politics, uh, one change that I have seen in the past just couple of years uh, has been about the insistence on one specific discourse. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that China is trying to sell a model. When it comes to the idea of internet sovereignty, China has become more vocal. And uh, China is defending the idea that countries should develop their own versions of the internet, which is more responsive to cultural influences and political influences and so forth. Uh, this was initially a said kind of sotto voce without uh, trying to uh, suggest this as a new uh, global agenda, but the insistence on this model has become more visible and stronger. And you might not see it on Chinese media, you might not hear it in the popular press, but if you enter uh, venues where internet governance issues are being discussed, uh, you will find that this is uh, a big deal. And it's a very specific discourse because the sovereign internet doesn't mean that you have to do something. It's quite of a open discourse. It says like everybody should do their own thing. So it doesn't come with strings attached, which doesn't come with a Chinese model of the internet attached. But I can see governments in Africa sort of seizing and uh, this opportunity and sort of building a momentum for uh, some call it fragmentation of information societies. And I think this would be a risk. This could go back again to your point, Cobus, uh, about uh, the importance of building institutions locally that are responsive to their own citizen. If a system is, uh, can be criticized, challenged, uh, and scandals and uh, draft laws can be contested, uh, that's going to be fine. Huh? But when this is not the case, uh, it might become a problem. We're almost out of time, but there's one question that I want to make sure I get in. And it's probably the biggest frustration that all of our listeners in Africa have. And I would say probably 99% of African Internet users have as well, which is bandwidth and speed. Now, China hasn't done a lot in that space, but there is some indication that they will. And Huawei Marine may have the answer to this by bringing peace to Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about what peace means and why it might be important? 
Yeah, PIS is this new uh, undersea fiber optic uh, cable and large cable that is going to dock to the coast of uh, East Africa first and then connect north to Egypt and south uh, to South Africa. And it's part of the you know Belt and Road Initiative and the expansion of infrastructure at all levels and telecommunication features prominently as part of these, despite its invisibility. And But even in this case, peace comes a little bit late because there have been a lot of, uh, after, let's say, 10 years where especially East Africa was uh, the dark corner of, uh, of the continent when it comes to connectivity. And uh, there have been like four or five cables that have docked recently to the coast of Kenya, even Somalia, despite the unrest, uh, and Djibouti and uh, farther up north. So uh, China is definitely going to make the difference because of the resources that can be invested in financial and technical when it comes to bandwidth. But even in this case, it's just going to be one of the many players. And some of these players are coalition of African governments that came together to respond to the frustration of not being able to secure funding from uh, traditional donors. And then later on, other actors that we might not see in uh, usually in this kind of space, uh, like supporters from uh, from Saudi Arabia and Qatar, and which have decided to invest in this space. So it is a competitive sector, and China is going to make some difference, but not hold of the difference. Interesting. Well, it's good news for, for everybody in Africa because bandwidth, again, is the big complaint. And if that's going up, that is just great for the online ecosystem, for business, for everything. So if you guys want to follow this topic, and it is one of the most important topics that's out there in the China-Africa relationship and for Africa as a whole right now, you want to make sure you stay on top of what Ignio Gardiadoni is reading and writing and doing these days on this topic. His article can be found at asiaglobalonline.hku.hk. That's Hong Kong University's website. Just look for Asia Global Online. The title is China and the Building of Africa's Information Societies. It's a great overview piece. Not too academic. I say that not in any disparagement of you guys, you academics, but sometimes it's a little wordy no, that's what, that's for the what rest of us they, as yeah, lay they people. They told us not to be too and, academic and we just... Uh, and I think it's great. It's really great. And we can actually understand it. <laughs> so um, so I think that's fantastic. Uh, Ingenio, I also noticed that you are quite active on Twitter. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing, what's the best way that they can stay in touch with you? Is my first name, Eugenio, so I-G-I-N-I-O, with the E at the end, Eugenio E. I highly recommend following him on Twitter. Eugenio, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure as usual. Kobus, I thought it was so interesting when Ingenio kind of confirmed that China is, in fact, the big player in the ICT space. And again, it's something that they don't get a lot of credit for. I do think there are a lot of reasons for concern. This idea that the facial recognition technology does not seem to agree or understand or recognize black people, to me, is just a data problem. And that will be resolved in the next year or two. I, I have no doubt. And seeing the speed with which facial recognition technology has been rolled out here in China, it's only a matter of time before it comes to Africa and before they figure out some of these glitches in the systems. And the Chinese are well positioned to do that. So I think there are some real reasons for concern, uh, particularly when you're here in China and you see how effective China has been in creating their own internet. For a lot of people who don't live in China, it's hard to imagine that the internet is not just the internet. But here, we don't get the normal internet. We get a Chinese internet. 
And it would be kind of sad that if that model is exported around the world, making it more difficult to communicate, making it more difficult for people to express divergent points of view, if there is, of course, this really effective surveillance technology that the Chinese in so many ways I've built at a scale that is unrivaled by anyone else in the world. So on the one hand, I have a lot of excitement about what China's done in Africa on the ICT side. I see the handsets made by Huawei. I see the, the online services that are coming. Alibaba is coming to invest in Kenya and the startup culture that's coming. And then on the other side, there is this kind of nagging fear that what we see here in China will be brought to places like Rwanda and Ethiopia, among other countries. There's also, you know, it's, it's such a complicated situation because, you know, this, this is one of the key moments where academics would raise African agency, um, you know, because in, in the end, it really comes down to African decision making, like what, whatever kind of African Internet African decision makers want, China offers the tools to, to make that real. So it then becomes really, really important to have African conversations about exactly what Africans want um, and to make to put the pressure from citizens onto leaders to make that happen rather than having it be imposed top, from top down. At the same time, I think, you know, kind of as Eugenia also pointed out, the West is not a neutral actor here. There's a lot of surveillance coming from the West. There's a lot of political pressure for militarization coming from the West. And it's it's really important to, to actually have that conversation. And I think it's important to have that conversation also in the West, because that is not how the West thinks of itself. It is, it's a very easy narrative for, for the West to just think of China as this kind of military, you know, kind of power exporting authoritarianism. And the West is this you know, hand-wringing liberal standing on the side. That's not how it works. Like there's, It's a much more complicated situation. When you talk about African agency, though, it raises the question of whose agency and which Africans. So are we talking about the African elites that Chinese stakeholders tend to prefer to deal with? Or are we talking about civil society and union groups and labor groups and dissidents and mining uh, organizations and worker rights groups that oftentimes are at odds with the government and that could find themselves on the receiving end of some of this really horrific technology? So I guess that question of agency is one that's up in the air as well, depending on where you are in different countries. And then you're not even talking about something like fake news or the use of social media in elections or ethnicity. Like, yeah, this is this can get really complicated. So it is very, very complicated. This will be an issue that we continue to explore over the coming weeks and months. It's probably one that we're going to start spending more attention on because I feel like over the past year we've neglected it, but it's become so important to so many people in such you know profound ways because this kind of technology really is very intimate with us given the fact that we have our cell phones with us everywhere we go. And the fact that the median age in Africa now is 18 means that so many young people are being raised in a culture of technology where the only way they get news and information is through a device. Uh, whether that device is something that is shared and is communal in a family or whether it's their own. But again, we talked about Techno at the top of the show, which is a Chinese Shenzhen-based uh, cell phone company that now has 30% of the market. And there is no indication that that number is going to go down anytime soon. So the Chinese presence in ICT is only going to continue to grow. We would love to hear what you think about it. Share with us your thoughts, your opinions. 
You can find me on LinkedIn, and there's a great conversation always going on over there. You can also email us. We're putting our email addresses in the show notes here of, of the program. And of course, you can always join us on our Facebook page, and we'll have all the information on where to access that coming up. So for Kobus Van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening to the China in Africa podcast. We'll be back again next week with another edition. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.